Hello and welcome to Do You Know What? A podcast in which three liberal Jews get together every couple of weeks and we talk about what's going on in the world and what's going on in our heads. We also invite along a guest to join in the chat and this week we were really pleased to be joined by Josh Edelman. Josh Edelman is originally from the US. He now lives over here in the UK, as well as being a rabbi's husband. He is also a lecturer in theatre studies. We talk a lot about the US election and the events that have been going on over there over the last few weeks. And it's really interesting to hear Josh's perspective as a US citizen living in the UK and watching it all from here. It's a really fascinating conversation, so I hope you enjoy it and stay tuned. Welcome to our latest episode of Do You Know What? My name is Rebecca Singerman-Knight. I am one of the co-hosts and I'm Deputy Chair of Kingston Liberal Synagogue. I also teach piano and in my spare time I am in the garden with my cats. Hi, my name is Leo Mindell. I'm another one of the hosts. This week, I'm doing a lot of WordPress. Hi, I'm Rabbi Charlie Beginski. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Liberal Judaism. And uh, spare time? What's that? You've got loads of spare time, Charlie. You have, if I remember from the last count, unless you've lost any, three children, one dog. And how? what else? Two cats. Two cats. And a partridge in a pear tree. There you go. So there's loads of time. Um, so we are recording this the day after uh, Joe Biden's inauguration. Since we last met, well, what's been happening? So we've got the vaccine rollout uh, going strongly across the UK and Israel. Uh, we had some kerfuffles in the Capitol building a couple of weeks ago. And yesterday we saw Joe Biden sworn in as president and Kamala Harris uh, sworn in as vice president. So it's been a fairly quiet couple of weeks. Um, Leo, what did you think of Lady Gaga's performance yesterday? Parrot? Was it the parrot? <laughs> no, it was gold. She she had gold in ears that I saw. I didn't see the parrot, but I oh, saw she the had golden, a, she had a golden gold ears. bird thing. It was okay. like you know you know those like really old ladies, and they have those like you know three ducks going up across our fireplace, kind of flying upwards. Right. It was one of those. Okay, I didn't. And see she that had bit. a gold mic as well. I thought it was it was the highlight of my my inauguration day. I don't know about you guys. Okay, so another person who would have been watching yesterday is our guest, Josh Edelman. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, it's a pleasure to be here. So, uh, yeah, my, my name is Josh Edelman. I'm, I teach theatre studies at Manchester Metropolitan University. The other relevant reason that I'm here is that I am married to Rabbi Leah Milstein of the Ark Synagogue. Uh, of Northwood in Northwest London. So there's this whole question about what do you call the male spouses of rabbis and cantors? And, you know, the traditional uh, idea of the, the rabbi's wife as the rebetzin. So, yeah, I've heard rebetzman. I've heard rebetzer, though that just seems wrong somehow. Yeah, that doesn't work. Um, the rabbi's husband, I think, I'm going to go with that. Oh, how about the second husband? That would imply that there is somehow a first husband out there. But, you know, we're not... I don't really think we do that so much in Judaism. No, it's a more of a Christian thing, really, in a funny way. Two wives, there's some tradition. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, two wives we can talk about biblically, but uh, two husbands is not as traditional, shall we say. Uh, yes, no, but but you're, what you're alluding to is... Kamala Harris's husband, who is going to be the first Jewish resident? Well, the first Jewish second husband, but he's also going to be the first second husband. 
So we're not mm. quite sure what to make about that. There's a lot of firsts. There's a lot of firsts there. Uh, I think the interesting thing is that we've never had somebody this Jewish this close to the presidency. And there was a beautiful little campaign ad where Kamala and her husband were lighting Hanukkah candles together. It was really lovely. And there's been all sorts of stuff where, you know, Jewish American Twitter has been going nuts about him, about how he's, you know, such a nice Jewish boy, and he's, uh, they're raising their kids in a Jewish family, and it looks like the sort of family that a lot of Jews know. Um, and to see that, you know, in the vice presidency is really, really exciting. I, I saw the advert. I thought he came across as kind of wonderful and dorky at the same time. I don't know if that's fair, but oh, yeah. it was very, very charming. You know, we like a little bit of dorky. That, that's totally. part of the Jewish aesthetic there. Totally. It's my Jewish aesthetic anyway. I'm really interested though, Josh, that you just said it's the closest Jewish that we've had to a presidency. And yet, even if we don't want to acknowledge it that's not quite true uh, yeah I suppose that is true that's a really good point Charlie it just reminds me of our yeah. social bubbles that we've talked about before that actually it depends on the lens that you're looking through it on who do you want to see reflected there so I imagine Josh has got a similar social bubble to me where absolutely Jewish Twitter is going mad and really excited but there is another Jewish Twitter out there who um, has seen things quite differently during this period. Of course, this is part of the difficulty, is that when you looked at the previous president, I'm trying very hard not to say his name anymore, uh, when you look at the previous president and the people that he surrounded himself with, not just his family, but people like Stephen Miller, uh, who was his advisor, especially on matters of immigration, um, and really the architect of the family separation policy and the Muslim ban and some things that I think a lot of us think of as really horrible and um, inimical to the Jewish values that we that we hold dear. We kind of don't want to own those people. You know, that's where the Yiddishisms like Shonda for de Goyim come in. And uh, I suppose part of maturity is, is saying, okay, we have to acknowledge those people as our people. You know, even when we don't agree with them, we have to acknowledge them as our fellow Jews. That's actually, it's good of you to bring that up, Charlie, because I think that gets to something that's going on more broadly in America right now. I was really struck by when Biden said about memory and the role of memory in healing has been going round and round. Maybe that's the rabbi in me in terms of sermon material. But I was thinking about the place of, you know, memory requires ownership of something and an acknowledgement of something. And I am playing with that idea still at the moment. Yeah, no, it's true. I think the other thing that he was going on very much about was unity. And, you know, this is something that I think people are, are struggling with as well. There are a lot of people, I think, on both sides of America who think that there's an element of fundamental evil in the other side. Both sides think they're right. It won't surprise you which side I'm on. The right side. Well, but the idea that, you know, we're going to be able to have unity and togetherness with people who we think have done profoundly evil things um, and have supported profoundly evil things, that's a hard ask. And that's, I think that's one of the, that's the sort of thing that I would imagine you're going to hear sermons on from many rabbis across America to try to say, you know, what do we do with our, with our friends, with our family members, uh, with our fellow Jews uh, who have supported this. Um, and I think, you know, as more and more gets revealed about what happened over the last four years, and it's all going to come out now, it's going to be hard. 
it's going to be hard. How wide do we cast that description of profoundly evil, though? Because that's a really powerful thing to say. And I think, you know, that you, you have the extremes where I think a lot of people would be able to point to that and go, yeah, that's pretty evil. So I'm thinking, obviously, of those people who uh, ransacked the capital with intention to harm. And there were clearly people who had intention to harm, possibly the vice president, possibly the speaker of the house. And I think it's fairly clear cut to say that those people are pretty evil or pretty disturbed. Don't think there would be a lot of uh, debate about that. But what about the 74 million people who did support Trump, um, many of whom supported Trump for reasons that were not necessarily profoundly evil, for reasons where they did think um, that Trump was, was actually doing better for them and were very, very concerned about some of the things they were seeing on the other extreme side. Um, you know, we, do we need to be really careful about how far we actually kind of use that description? Otherwise, we're just kind of baking in that divisiveness. Oh, yeah. Yeah, of course. I, I, I think this is, I mean, this is where maybe I ask the rabbi. Uh, but there is a thing about, you know, the, the people who are genuine white supremacists, genuine neo-Nazis who are, you yeah, know, that's easy who are violent or intending violence against people, that's an easy, right? Um, and the, the thing is, there are relatively few of them. Um, there are a lot more people who, you know, from my point of view, we might say, encouraged them, facilitated them, made that possible. Not because they liked violence, not because they intended anybody harm, but unintentionally, for other reasons, for good reasons, as you put it out, uh, people who supported one side or the other for, for a lot of reasons. Uh, but that still had the effect of, you know, facilitating things like violence or, or you know, tearing children away from their families, uh, that sort of thing. I don't know. I, the, the question about responsibility and evil uh, and blame is really difficult. The sense I get from Biden, and you know, Biden has been in politics a very, very long time. He was in the US Senate before I was alive. He is a peacemaker and deal maker. Like that's what he's been for 30, 40 years. I think he's the last person who wants to see, say, prosecutions, um, who wants to see people in courtrooms. That's a really interesting idea there, Josh, because I've been thinking about this as well. If they sit there and drag it all up now, what you're actually doing is just bringing it back into the news cycle. And a good example really is they had to let that jumbo jet take off, calling it still Air Force One, um, and get it off the air. And as soon as it was gone, it's like, right, that's enough. We do not need any more pictures of this. The problem is if you just keep bringing it back on keep showing it keep going on and on and on about it you're never going to heal it i know that that's difficult because if you look at say what happened in south africa where they had to have all of the trials afterwards and they went through the whole process once uh, apartheid was gone and it was it took a long time of re connecting all the parts and then you can look at the like the Nuremberg trials which are afterwards and these things sometimes you have to do it I'm not saying we want to go to that level but you just keep bringing this back um, if you keep bringing it around the trouble is that often the people who need to feel the restitution are the people who don't have the voice and it's a balance somewhere between making sure that restitution is felt and that there is not uh, an increased dis disenfranchisement of the people who 
the other way voted because they felt disenfranchised and unheard in the first place. And I think Josh is alluding to something right, which is that Biden being the eternal politician and the understanding of making deals also understands that deals are not just made from the top, that deals are made from building your base. And I think that's what Biden does understand is that you have you have to make people feel continue to feel engaged with the end result and some of that end result has to be some feeling of restitution and that's where i i think the mem to come back to the memory thing comes there's in order to remember something you have to name it once it's named you can't just leave it there named you have to to get to the healing point you have to do something with that memory and that will be the big um, challenge for for the American people led by Biden in, in what does that restitution bit that links the moment of memory of acknowledging it of saying pain and suffering and evil things happened here and we want to heal and if he doesn't jump that middle stage and just try and go to the healing I think that, that that's where the more number of people can be engaged and where the healing really will happen. But I think one of the problems with the American cycle, and Josh may be able to explain it more, is that the there's always this 90 day, 100 days, the first 100 days. And if you don't get some of your things out the door in the first 100 days, you never get going. And I wonder if you spend half of the first 100 days stuck dealing with this, you know, that's why maybe they will push off the... Uh, the hearings until after there what do you think they'll do josh well in terms of the hearings for the second trump impeachment I, I don't know um a lot of the rules that everyone thought were the case about u.s politics have been blown up in the last four years so the idea of the hundred days may not exist anymore I, I don't really know we're not in the same political landscape we were even seven years ago i think rabbi charlie is very right that you can't heal what you can't name. You have to acknowledge something in order to heal something from it. And there's obviously a real need for healing in America right now. And if we can do that in a way that doesn't involve blame, or any more blame than absolutely necessary. And what you were saying about uh, South Africa and Nuremberg is interesting. Of course, there's a big difference between those. You know, Nuremberg was a trial. Uh, people were jailed, executed as a consequence of it. South Africa was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, the stories were told, but if you were willing to tell your story, you were given amnesty. And that sort of thing could be a way forward. A question to both of you, actually, because you've both talked about naming this. And we've got a couple of comparisons here. We've talked about Nuremberg, Nazi Germany. We've talked about apartheid South Africa. What are we What are we saying the name should be? Are we saying it should be fascism? Are we saying it should be apartheid? Because... Those are both very, very strong words and very uh, powerful um, comparators. But actually, aren't we seeing a system that actually democracy worked here? You know, they tried to storm the capital. They didn't get very far. Trump tried to overturn the election. He failed. There was a peaceful transfer of power yesterday. So what, what are we actually calling this? I think it's got to be bigger than just Trump. Uh huh. We can talk about what Trump did and didn't do. And I've got no love for the man. I'm sorry. That's not just the problem. I think what we name it is white supremacy. First okay. and foremost, that's, that's what I think we name it. So will you almost argue this is the fourth era of, you know, so the KKK have had three eras in the past. They've had three eras of when they were strong. Yep. Do we almost, is this like the fourth era of that that type of 
Yeah, so you can go back even before that. You know, the KKK weren't founded until after the Civil War. There was certainly white supremacy in the U.S. before Mm. it. I mean, the the big analogy that I'm seeing from American writers who I respect and and, and I'm listening to is about uh, what's sometimes called the redemption of the South. And this is something that I think Brits might not know about. You know, you hear the story about the American Civil War and that the North won. Good. I mean, I'm glad the North won. But what I think the story that is not taught, and I wasn't taught as much in school even growing up, uh, was about how the South won the peace, how the effort to implement the victory of the Civil War, not just in terms of military conquest, but in terms of making sure that you built a racially equal society that wasn't based on slavery on the South, was abandoned um, just in the decade after the Civil War. It was abandoned because of the rise of the KKK. It was, a, it was abandoned because of violence. There was a successful coup in some cities in, in, I think, North Carolina. Because it was just too politically costly. Because people, you know, as as Charlie was saying, you need to get people on board. So there was this idea, well, let's just not talk about it. Let's just not worry about it. We won the war. They're not going back to war again. Whatever they do with their black people, it's their problem. And that set up the kind of re-racialized South. That set up Jim Crow. That set up uh, the problems that led to the civil rights movement. So I think there are people looking back at that and saying, we we didn't do it that time. We didn't name it. We let that off the hook. And we can't do that again. And that's exactly the naming that I'm talking about, Rebecca. I'm not mm. talking about naming it an era or naming it. An, and I think Josh is absolutely right about naming it white supremacy. But for me, it's about naming the rewriting of history, of naming people that what, whose voices were lost, of naming hurts that actually looked like victories. Um, they're the things I'm talking about naming. Or okay. maybe naming's the wrong word, acknowledging saying out loud, raising up voices of... I mean, we heard that in um, Amanda Gorman yesterday in um, exactly in her words and um, how she opened and how much that spoke to, I think, so many people watching that and the, the just change of image in the White House. I mean, I loved the amazing. phrase that she had that America is unfinished. Which is very Jewish idea, right? This is yes. amazing. That, that was the most powerful bit of that for me because it was this idea of progress is being made but we're not there yet. Ah, yeah, but it was one other thing too. I mean, not to lower the tone a bit, but oh, America, you great, America, you great unfinished symphony. Anybody get the line? It's a Hamilton line. She's quoting uh, Hamilton. Yes, of course, yes, she, she did. She tweeted all about, yeah, I couldn't help but get the Hamilton lines in. <laughs> I saw that, I saw that, yeah, absolutely. Although my, my kids are obsessed with watching a programme where they do body art each time they have to paint things on models. And one of the images, and it really struck me, was they painted on a woman as a quilt and she's sewing the rest of her patchwork um, on herself. And it was an incredible image, actually. It's a bit gross. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> very image. Especially for somebody who's really afraid of sewing needles. But <laughs> even so, it was a great image, I thought, of like individuals, but also of nations and of people and the, the moment of time of this sense of of sewing together patchworks but it not quite being finished you're also then referencing some things in american culture you know you've heard of the phrase the melting pot right the idea of america is this melting pot of immigrants uh well there's a these days people tend to use that less and they talk about patchwork the idea the problem with the melting pot is that it 
the idea is that everything comes in and it is erased. You can't tell where it yes. came from anywhere. It becomes uniform. And the patchwork is not uniform. And you, But you, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's not uniform. Mm. Exactly. Um, that there's mm. this kind of beauty and unity in diversity. And so mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure you didn't hear the word melting pot yesterday. You certainly could have heard the word no, patchwork. No, it does. It's quite old-fashioned, isn't it? Yeah. It's quite yeah, old-fashioned, yeah, yeah. the melting pot. But I think that's a be- I think the image of the patchwork quilt is a beautiful one. It really speaks to me because we've talked as well on here about how do you have multiple voices mm-hmm. while still having some sort of unity uh, um, without conformity. And it's a real challenge. But actually, the patchwork quilt works really well as a as an image for that talking about unity and multiple voices um and having josh here is is quite nice for me um, just quietly because it, you've got another bloke isn't it it's because you got another bloke because josh, from josh's you want own me to personal talk about football it's not working no, sorry <laughs> from josh's own personal life you know being in a room where they're basically as you can see josh i am surrounded by two women with a lot of opinions that which sounds very similar to your own home life i have no objections um <laughs> I, I have to say, I rather you make it like, sound opinion- like a hostage video. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I have to say, I rather like opinionated women. I think unopinionated women are a bit dull sometimes. I, I, um, I would absolutely agree. But sometimes it's really nice, Josh, that occasionally you get a word in edgeways, which is uh, with your with your own wife, I uh, or the rabbi, whichever way we refer to it. I know that from my own experience, it's like there is her way of doing things. And then there was the wrong way. No, there's just her way of doing things. That's it. There isn't really another option. I Well, you know, this is... Uh, I think that opinionated people are very interesting. Part of the point of having a, a relationship is that you both get to say what you think and that you know how to disagree uh, healthily and, and in a productive and, and loving manner. You know, we do that. I like that very much. You know, I like that. I, I feel like I get to speak. I feel like I get to hear, hear her. I think she's usually right. I mean, you know, that's just the case. But uh, not always. And I and she listens and she talks. I do think there is, and this is maybe not, uh, I don't know if this is appropriate on the podcast, who knows. Uh, there is a, a slightly German uh, sense of, well, we just say this is the correct way. Um, and, and every German I know, male or female, does that a lot more than English people. This kind mm. of very English, oh, I'm not quite sure, which means absolutely not, not in a million years. You know, that doesn't exist in Germany. Actually, when I moved to this country, I had to learn English. You know, I, I spoke American. Um, yeah. We're we are more likely to say what you think. And the kind of translation to English, oh, I'll take that under advisement, which means I will never think about that again. I often say that my only other language is actually American because I used to spend quite a lot of time in the US for work in my in my previous life. And I felt that it was they are two languages. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Too Not just in the kind of like, you know, pants, trousers kind of way, but absolutely that, you know, to your point about yes. the kind of subtleties underneath it. And we had Sarah last week who was talking about Israeli uh, language mm. and uh, the culture that um, is, which is a different type of directness. Yes, exactly. Yeah. But yes, Josh, what you yeah. were saying kind of made me think back to what we were talking about mm. earlier and talking about Biden's speech yesterday, because I thought one of his most powerful things was when he said, you know, to those who didn't vote for me, give me a shot um, and listen. And even if you still disagree, that's OK. 
you know, again, it was just that kind of appeal to, you know, let's disagree, but let's talk and let's respect each other as opposed to being so polarised on both sides. That's a stark contrast to watching yeah. as, you know, the, the speech that Trump gave. Yeah. Where everything was about him and what he did for his base. And it was very much like, I'm only interested in the 75, whatever he claimed it would be, that were voted for him and nothing else. And it's like, it's like, I'm only interested in that. Almost that feeling like, unless you're sitting at my table, you're not of interest to me. And that is the very big difference when you hear somebody like Biden. And you, couldn't, you almost couldn't get a polar difference. And I suppose it's that classic situation when, when you go really hard in one direction, you naturally jump hard mm -hmm. in the other. When what, what everybody would hope for is somewhere in the middle. But actually, the middle isn't, is, is never achievable. That's funny. You know, I, I disagree in a way in that Biden is far from an extremist. Mm. You know, we didn't jump from the far right to the far left. We jumped from the far right to the far middle, if that makes sense. And, you know, Biden would be a Tory in this country, probably. Like, if we have to put him on a left-right spectrum, he's not particularly far to the left. Uh, America's It'd be a one-nation Tory. Probably, yeah. Yeah, 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 I think so. But, but I think the difference is, and this gets to what both of you were saying, it's about disagreement. Trump did not understand disagreement. You know, it just wasn't in his uh, vocabulary. It was a, you're with us or you're against us, or you're with me or you're against me. Um, the world's divided into friends and enemies, and that's it. And um, to the point where, you know, when the coronavirus came to the US, it first came to New York City uh, and, and the area around it. And there's, it's quite clear the the Trump folks thought, well, who really cares? You know, it's coming to blue states. It's coming to Democratic states. It's not coming to Republican states. They're not my people. Let them die. You know, uh, and that that's horrific. And I'm maybe putting it a little more starkly than they did. But I think it's undeniable that they, that the White House would have paid more attention to the early mm. arrival of the coronavirus in the US if it had been the sort of people who they saw as, you know, the 75 million who voted for them, not the ones who voted for the other side. So, so this idea that how do we get people to, to disagree and yet be part of the polity, you know, just, and be part of the society and to say, we, we can be a nation together, we can be one people, we can be one community, even with our disagreement, without erasing that disagreement. The the moderate, you know, Biden is the ultimate moderate, is all about that. Like, that's that's what he does. And the extremist, you just can't talk to those people. Those people become not people, you know, they become inhuman. And that's you know, that's why people would talk about his fascism. Do you think he can bring um, extreme polls together or at least enough of them to leave the kind of fringes really at the fringes and bring more people back into that centre ground? How optimistic are you? Uh, I don't know. Um, I, well, put it this way. There will, there will always be people who will never accept him, who will say he's an illegitimate president, who will say he's an illegitimate president for his entire time in office. That was the same case with Trump, right? I mean, you know, there's always people who thought that. Well, yeah, but it's the same case with Obama. Yeah. You know, yeah, there yeah, were plenty right. of people who said Obama was there's illegitimate. Always, yeah, time. exactly. It's not yeah. new. Mm. So, so he's not going to convince them. No. Um, I think he's going to be able to demonstrate enough cooperation uh, that enough people will 
I hope, I certainly hope, uh, that he'll be able to demonstrate enough cooperation, enough getting stuff done with that cooperation, that people will say, okay, this actually makes sense. There is a place for government. There is a place for politics. It's not just, if I disagree with you, let's burn it all down. I hope so. And where does Kamala Harris come in? What's going to be her role? Because I think, you know, we talked about her husbands early on, but actually (laughs) it's really significant that we also have a woman in the White House. Well, I'm worried. I'm worried she'll end up as president, not because that would be a bad thing, but every time time I see Biden, I'm really worried. I'm like yesterday when he was at the bottom of those stairs and I was like, oh, no, he's got to climb the stairs. Is he going to get up there? He just seems quite frail, doesn't he? You you have a Yiddish mama thing going on there. I mean, you're you're worried about the guy. You want to give him some chicken soup? I yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I'm like, just sit down, take it easy. These take are the memes easy. that are doing the rounds, right? Or like a oh, in no, Jewish the circles as well. Oh, the Bernie memes. The Bernie memes. The They're Bernie memes funny. are brilliant. They're the best. <laughs> but coming back to Kamala Harris. Yeah, let's talk about Kamala. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm actually really curious. What what she looks like from a, a British point of view. I'd be interested to hear what you guys think of her first. I would start by saying that um, because we've had a number of female prime ministers, that the acceptance of the optics are much better. So it doesn't strike me. And, and I think probably I've this last or the year before and everything with Black Lives Matter has has given me an opportunity to reevaluate things. And I know maybe we'll cover it later, but if you take, for example, Hamilton and how the cast in Hamilton, at the beginning you start and you go, it doesn't look right in your head because the norms that you're expecting. Because it's like, well, they don't look like sisters. And it's like, do they have to look like sisters or are they just really good actresses? Um, and that, to me, is where I see it. Funny enough, you start by going, well, what does she look like? This, that, and the other. And then you, then it turns around to, is what can she do? And I think that's going to be interesting. I expect, particularly because of the, the tie in the Senate there that's tied and she's the break, that we're going to see far more of her as a vice president than we probably have seen for a long time. From my perspective, she is... There is a physical representation of change there that you don't see with with Biden. Um, Biden is an older white male. And um, I think about not just for me, but I think particularly for um, my daughters have followed this election because of her. Um, and that I think if that's for two <laughs> white Jewish girls in the UK, I can only think what the difference that that would make for the US. And that is a visual representation, but that's I think that's very powerful after Trump because so much was made of the physical representation that Trump had. Um, he was, you know, a, a very visual figure and um, did become very visually associated with, with uh, the US. And I think Kamala Harris is a very, very different, not only, I mean, look, obviously in the way that she talked, she made brilliant speech yesterday. Some of the, we talked about memes, some of the amazing memes of her dancing with young people. Also, you know, her actions, of course, speak. But I think their physical representation of having a woman of colour, a woman, um, somebody who isn't in 
in their um, you know late seventies is really important for not only for the young people in the US but also for the world in terms of what what is the representation of the United States of America now outside of the US? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with everything that that both Leo and and Charlie just said. I think um, I think it is very powerful. Although yes, we are we are more kind of used to having female leaders in this country. It, it was very powerful to see her sworn in yesterday, um, and it reminded me of you know watching Barack Obama sworn in as well. That was also an incredible moment. Uh, was it twelve years ago? Twelve years ago? Now? Um, yeah, twelve years ago. Okay, so I'm just going to get a little bit dark. Um, so thinking back to when Obama was sworn in, and there was that huge kind of optimism about change for similar reasons. And then obviously, eight years later, we get Trump. What worries me is that in four years time, we're looking at a Kamala, Kamala Harris run for the presidency against either Trump, who comes back, or one of Trump's children, or one of Trump's ilk. And I just think the horrible, divisive nature of a Trump-style campaign running against Kamala Harris, I don't know where that would go, and I don't know... Where what that would do to the country. Josh, what are your thoughts? It would go to some really dark places. Yeah. I think you're right about that. Remember that, you know, Trump is a reality TV star. He's not a businessman. Um, and his first foray into politics, well, except for kind of racist things from the 80s, uh, was uh, denying that Barack Obama was right. an actual US citizen. Right. Uh, he wasn't really one of us. And, you know, he was really Kenyan. And the the racist overtones of that are, are deafening. Um, it, it's interesting. I, I think that definitely from a British point of view, the most important thing is that she's a, a woman of color. And that is a really important thing. You know, I, like representation matters, especially, you know, the presidency, the American presidency is this weird mutt of, from a British point of view, the prime minister and the monarch, right? Yeah. Um, the whole thing was set up in the 18th century when the British king still had some power. So the relationship between the president and Congress is a bit like the relationship between the monarchy and parliament was in the 18th century, and it's kind of got stuck there. So the president is both a figurehead and a political office, you know, unlike the president of, say, Germany or Ireland or these other places where there is a president, but it's like the person who waves. The president of Ireland is someone who has tea with the queen. That's all they are. And that's an important role. Like, it's a figurehead. Mm-hmm. You need a figurehead. Mm-hmm. But but um, the American president is that end. I think what, what Rabbi Charlie was saying before about naming and acknowledging so that we know what's happened could do a lot of good here. Right. Um, I think there's a lot that's happened in the last four years that has been covered up, you know, that's starting to come out now. And when it comes out, it will make another... Trump-style campaign much less possible. You know, and part of that is Trump's things that that even Trump fans don't like, like his ties to Russia, like his uh, economic enmeshment with China. You know, the the, the Trump loyalist base are not pro-Putin. I mean, they might not care, but, you know, if anything, they're old cold warriors. They still think of Russians as communists, which is wrong and ridiculous but whatever i think there's two things that you can unpack from what you've just said there josh one is that trumpism and anything that's related to it has always worked on having an enemy it's a it's an age-old issue that particularly america survived on and has thrived on is that for america to 
move forward, it always has to have something to act as as the well. If you don't, if we don't do this, this is the enemy that's coming over the hill. It's coming, you know, it's duck and cover. It's all of these sort of things. There's always been an enemy out there, and it works um, really well and really effect. It's an effective way of putting fear into people to actually move them forward. So that's one thing that 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 you see. The other thing I think is that regardless of where we would like you're as you said it earlier you're never going to move the extremes of either argument and you just can't you know there was a classic thing on something i was reading this says how how do you convince a flat earther what would you need to do to convince a flat earther if you took them into space would you convince them it's like no because you'll never ever 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 convince somebody of that view or that whatever you show them you'll they'll just say it's just fake you came up with a fake thing to show it to me but it's not real and you have to just sit there and go do you know what we can't deal with that we can't deal with extremes and extremes always are the problem when you when you start falling into dealing with extremes which we've talked about earlier you end up with that running the world and you've got to just find those 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 things in between well this is where i disagree with you a little bit i, I you're you're right 99 percent of the way that's pretty good for me eh? <laughs> dear oh dear dear oh dear i thought we were i thought i was finally going to have somebody on this show that would agree with me and i'm not i thought it was the most diplomatic way of saying it you're right 90 percent of the way i'm giving you 90 percent he actually said 99 percent, but even then I'm i did wrong. say 99 uh, <laughs> rabbis don't listen <laughs> Maybe I, I, I'm learning to be a bit British, I'm not sure. Uh, but I, I think you're, we're never going to convince the extremes, but I don't think that means we can't deal with them. Um, and I, I think it's the question of what do we do about the extremes? Convincing, giving them arguments, evidence, logic is not the point. This is a thing that's happened to politics. And here's also actually where I speak a bit with my hat on as a theater guy, as a theater studies guy, and as a theater director. People respond to politics emotionally. People respond to most things emotionally. They don't necessarily respond based on evidence and data. We can say we wish they would, but it's just not true. And Trump was extraordinary. You know, he's a TV star, right? He knows how to play that emotional game. Yeah. He doesn't have evidence. He doesn't have logic. He doesn't have reasons. He's never seen the need for them. And frankly, he doesn't have a need for them. Not in the way he does his work. Not in the way he does his career. So what I think that means is we need to actually, as people like rabbis, as people like cultural leaders, as people, as educators, as fellow citizens and these sorts of things, we have to find out find ways to reach emotionally and personally uh, to people on the other side um, and to connect them on a human level. And that might be where change can come from rather than arguments. Um, it's slower, it's annoying, it's, um, it takes time, it takes sweat. It's very community organizing, you know? But I actually really believe in it for that reason. So anybody who's ever written, read anything that I've written, I'm really obsessed about the role of theatre and its crossover with um, theology and Judaism. But Josh, you've been doing some particular work um, and research around COVID uh, with your with your professional hat on. I have, yes. So I really, I've been sort of following just by the posts and things but I think uh, our uh, audience at home would love to hear a little bit about what you've been up to. Sure, sure. It's, it's a bit of a, a change from Trump but oh, that's exactly what we need right now. 
let's talk less Prince Pumpkin. Um, so I am uh, working on a project called British Ritual Innovation under COVID-19, or BRIC-19. What we're looking at is the way that this crisis, the, the pandemic, the lockdown, all that, has changed the ways that people worship um, has changed the ways that people engage in religious ritual of all sorts. You know, I'm thinking about weddings, funerals, uh, holiday celebrations. I'm thinking about weekly worship, something. The kind of fire-forged innovations that are happening, because there is still just as much of a need for this stuff as there always has been, maybe more. Uh, but the tools by which you achieve it, you know, gathering in the same room and praying together and being together, are not possible anymore. So what do people do? And the, I mean, frankly, the idea came from, we already mentioned Leah, why not again? Uh, seeing the extraordinary work that Leah was doing, uh, Leah with you quite a bit too, uh, in making those changes happen uh, at the ARC and seeing what could be done and seeing the really quite extraordinary and sometimes unexpected outcomes of that. I also thought of this as kind of with my theater studies hat on. When you have somebody who's a religious leader who's kind of suddenly got to improvise and suddenly got to make something work, well, that's actually a lot what actors and theater makers do. When you say, shoot, we're opening next week. We don't have a script yet. What are we going to do? And, you know, the show must go on, so you put it on. Uh, that same, uh, that attitude of creativity and of serving the public is something that I think really connects theater and religion in these ways. So, so that's what we're looking at. We're looking at it across uh, all faiths around the UK. Uh, we're looking at all parts of the UK, rural, urban, Northern Ireland, Wales, Scotland, England. Um, we're doing it uh, at Manchester Metropolitan University, where I work, in association with the University of Chester, and it's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council. It's really quite exciting. What's the output going to be, uh, Josh? Well, so we already have a blog up, but that's okay. not the main output. But uh, it's brick 19 Mm -hmm. mmu.ac.uk you can share it with the show notes we will or do. if you just google brick 19 you will find the british rowing indoor championships and us uh we're not rowing um there is going to be conferences there's going to be public events uh there's going to be a book um we're going to probably try to make recommendations to government um but the main thing uh is going to be a report that should be coming out this summer uh it's really designed for people working in religious life. You know, what are the tips and tricks? What are the principles that you can use to nurture your community, to support your community through these difficult times, specifically in terms of how you can keep doing the rituals you want to do? Um, we will probably have some more academic outputs as well, but the main thrust of this is stuff that people on the ground can use. We're also going to be having a final conference uh, open to everybody around the world. If we can do it live in Manchester, we will do it live in Manchester. If we have to do it live online, we'll do it live online. And they're all going to be this summer. Sounds really exciting. And as a professional using that stuff, I look really look forward to uh, reading it. And we will definitely share the blog notes. I wanted to share something which was this week I was on a, on a video call run by the JRC, the Jewish Leadership Council, for CEOs working in, uh, as, in uh, Jewish organisations. And for a change, actually, rather than talking about business, um, we were talking about support supporting teams and the current time and a lot of people sharing quite personally I thought really excellent um, piece of 
a use of time for actually people to share their own experiences across the board because even though we work in very different sectors actually a lot of the challenges are very similar and what really struck me and has struck me a few times with conversations with with colleagues in different areas has been that we're in this period of liminality in between things that we're constantly in a in a we've got nothing to hold on to there's no end which is a difference I think in this lockdown than was in the first and I think clergy are feeling it but I also think people are feeling it who aren't clergy and and running teams or holding people together and it really struck me that there's a role for ritual there because for in periods of liminality we use ritual to take us from one moment to another and I was thinking about rituals that you could that are Jewish because we're working in the Jewish tradition but aren't necessarily religious in the way that people have understand understand religion and I think that is something that we've seen during COVID that how large the definition of religion can be and I wondered whether you've seen that that actually ritual has gone from because of this current situation has gone from being used by clergy in a specific way to being something much wider either used individually but also maybe used organizationally in different contexts to to take people from one place to another in a period of uncertainty it's interesting Uh, we're mostly looking at religious you know rituals obviously but definitely i've seen that there's two kinds of rituals there are lots of kinds of rituals two different kinds of rituals though and i think there's been a boom of both uh one is these kind of transition rituals um i think part of the difficulty of those now is that we don't quite know where we're going yet and usually at the end of a ritual, you know, you you took off from somewhere, you were in this scary, dangerous liminal space, and the ritual safely takes you to the new place that you're going to be. And I'm not sure 100% of the time we're, we're ready yet. Now, funerals, weddings, things like that, those are those sorts of liminal rituals. Those have been going on, and people have gotten really remarkably good at doing them in you know, what should be really difficult times. Like, how do you do a funeral when you're not there with a the body? It's, it's a very basic thing. But there's another kind of ritual, which I, I think of as kind of regular or time marking. You know, um, okay, today is a day like any other. I, you know, uh, the morning blessings, um, being able to, you know, say the daily Shema, being able to kind of greet the morning, greet the evening. Um, a lot of uh, congregations, not just Jewish, are having daily prayers online that they never did before. And are having huge uptake of this. I think there's um, a need for people to have a sense of continuity and not just change. Because there's enough change out there, thanks very much. You know, I, I want to know that, that things are still the same. And I think also the, the thing that's... So that there's been a huge market for that, a huge interest in that. The other thing that people are doing is because it doesn't matter when you're online, if you're down the road or across the world, uh, people are shopping. You know, people are searching. People are trying out things that they never would have tried out before. Um, people are are joining communities across the world or in a different tradition they grew up in or just dropping in. This week I'll try this and then I'll try a bit of this and try a bit of this and this, this. And so I think when we come out of this, you know, this is going to affect the way we worship going forward. How could it not? It's going to affect everything going forward. I think people are going to be a little more picky. And I think people are going to say, hey, during the lockdown, I got to hear exactly the sort of music I wanted to hear. I got to do exactly what I wanted. Now my local synagogue just offers one thing. So I take that further away than just 
that side on the religious side i look at the entertainment industry i look at my own industry of the sports industry and i look at the changes that have come about and i'm sitting there going do i want to go back i've i've actually watched as well as listening and watching more services at the synagogue in the last year than I ever have, I've actually watched more of my football team, Watford, than I ever have because I've watched every home and away game. And I'm sitting there going, do I want to go back to how it was? We've also had the great uh, opportunity in the last year that we've watched more programs including, you know, that we've had the exposure to things like Disney Plus and other things where we've been able to watch more of the type of things we want to watch rather than just the things that we don't like. And I think that's a Mm -hmm. classic opportunity that's come about because of this. And I wonder, as you say there, Josh, if you just look at all of those and you call, I mean, at times I, I look at religion as entertainment for part of your brain. Entertainment Um, for the soul. Yeah, possibly. But it's a bit much. It Not is. Sure I like it that is. Phrase. It is. Yeah. But the idea is that you're doing it for a reason, and you're doing it to. Not necessarily entertainment intentioned entertainment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> intentioned entertainment. Yeah, that's it. It depends. The, the nice it doesn't thing, roll off the tongue. No, does it doesn't. It, it doesn't. No. The nice I'm thing entertaining is, myself intentionally. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think the nice thing is that I find now I'm abusing myself intentionally. Yeah, exactly. Well, the nice thing is okay, I can also just bear, just just bear in mind that Charlie that slow your the, roll, slow your roll. The nice thing with this is we can all actually mute. The the rabbi during the sermons and that oh, we do wow. that intentionally you can also you know go get a cup of tea exactly i mean i admit leo that i i certainly you know i'm sometimes cooking dinner uh while watching uh leo run the friday night service you know i've got it on the laptop in the kitchen i'm praying along i'm also you know roasting the chicken it's a thing (laughs) the question is and i suppose it's coming around everything that you've just said there josh you're looking at from a religious viewpoint of how religion is adapting and i would argue that religion in most cases does adapt so what you call tradition what a lot of people would call tradition is something that we did at a certain time and now we're continuing to do it so are we forming these new traditions and that in the future we will look at these as the traditions bedrock traditions of our religion i think the difference now is the speed of change so i think that prior to lockdown change happened very slowly what josh referred to earlier and i I see it myself all the time is that change is happening so quickly and that we're having to innovate based on each new situation so actually as i referenced this lockdown and the, the way we practice is different than the first one so even though we got better at it in the first one this time we're we're responding to a different need and we're having to be responsive in a different way and that's what i hope we take out of this as well as the obvious hybrid and being together and all of those things i hope we take that ability to see what works and go with it and when it doesn't work to stop it and to to be able to do that instantaneous reflection and innovation and I think that in and of itself will be a great change to tradition. It's the agility isn't it? Agility. agility, Which was brought on by by circumstance because I, yeah. as you were saying that I was thinking about our experience at Kingston Liberal whereas a, probably about 18 months ago we'd kind of cottoned on to the fact that this synagogue Northwood and Pinner were live streaming services and we kind of thought hmm maybe we should try that and we started to think about it 
I think without the lockdown, we probably still wouldn't be doing it now. Or if we mm. were doing it mm. by now, we would have maybe just kind of dipped our toe into it. But, you know, the circumstances of the lockdown were such that we had no choice and we did it very quickly and then we improved and we improved and we improved. And now we're doing it, you know, regularly, I think, to a high standard. Thank you to our help from Leo, obviously. Um, And it was just the agility, but it was forced agility because of the circumstance. And I think if we can take that kind of, again, that speed of, of, of change to more normal circumstances in the future, then I think, you know, there's some really exciting things that could be done. With my academic hat on, I think that story is being replicated across the country, across a lot of faiths. That's not not a surprise. The, the only thing that I would say is that I, I entirely agree with you, not 99%, Leo, 100%, uh, that this is what traditions are, that they are patterns that have evolved over time and that get ossified, you know, get, get uh, solidified. But that does matter to people. Uh, so we had a big problem, actually. We, we, you know, this project is going far faster than most academic projects do. We, we conceived it, uh, got it funded within two months. Um, the word innovation in the title has been a real problem for people. And we're trying not to use it now. We're trying to use adaptation instead. Uh, because there is a real conservative strain in a lot of religions that says innovation is a problem. Innovation is not what we do. Uh, we believe in the tradition. We want to preserve the tradition. It's a kind of profoundly small-c conservative impulse. And I, whether or not I share that, I recognize that. You know, I see that it's out It's Keva Kavana. Really, Keva, the routine of doing, becomes really important. And that is tradition. You know, all of us need that comfort. But if prayer stays only in the place of comfort, we never act and change. And so we need the intention to do something with that routine as well. And I can see you're wrestling with words as completely that recognition. But you're, you're speaking also, Rabbi Charlie, as, of course, the head of liberal Judaism. You know, that's a very liberal view. Um, and folks who are not as liberal don't always share that view. You know, they, or they put it this way, they balance those those things differently. Yeah, or they share it, but they don't, they articulate it differently. I think that that's yeah. often the thing is that we've seen in the United Synagogue, for example, masses amount of innovation and, but wouldn't necessarily see it as innovation, would see it as adaption. I might call it innovation. They would call it adaption. So talking about adaption and innovation and taking this in a different thing. In the last couple of weeks, some of us on this call have uh, suddenly started using Clubhouse. <laughs> so Josh, Josh <laughs> is on Clubhouse. Charlie's on Clubhouse. Oh my God, I feel I'm behind. I need to get you on are, Clubhouse. You are, you are. completely behind the world. The world oh, moves. I'm world so moved. gosh. Um, Charlie, Josh, fad, disaster, the new world... And for those that don't know, Clubhouse is a new social media app where you can only talk. There's no pictures um, and you basically are in moderated rooms. And the idea is to try and have some sort of formal conversation, not like we're having here because this is a disaster, but that sort of thing. What's your take? Very early on. So in the summer, I really wanted to do a radio station for LJ, for Liberal Judaism, because I really felt like after staring at the screen all day, it would be really nice to hear voices and interact. But actually, a radio station was too static. So I'm really enjoying it at the moment. I'm really enjoying that sense of not looking at somebody, but actually being able to listen. I'm a big Radio 4 fan, so I'm a big fan of 
of listening to content. It's, and I, I'm really enjoying thinking of the potential ways that we might use it. So whether that's taking this conversation into Clubhouse, but also um, I'm thinking with my brothers. I have one brother in the States and one brother in Tel Aviv. We've often talked about doing a conversation um, about things that are affecting us from those three places. And Clubhouse has provided a way for us to be able to think about doing that and bringing other people into that conversation. Whether that sustained it's really difficult isn't it to sustain all the social media i find it really hard to maintain my twitter facebook instagram barely gets a touch from me and um that's without snapchat and other things so i'm not sure yet at the moment i'm enjoying the fad i'm thinking how we can use it josh how have you found it uh, i've been on it for about two days we're i'm very new here it's odd um i think i'm still getting bedded in. So most of the things I'm getting suggested are the kind of standard suggestions, which seem to be uh, a lot of discussions about how to make a lot of money as a social media influencer, which is not quite my business. Uh, and uh, lots of interesting, but often very disconnected conversations about American politics, uh, mostly from the African-American community. My guess is that that community is just very well represented on there, or I might just have some links to it, I'm not sure. It feels a little bit like CB radio, you know, that thing of just, uh, hey, I feel like talking to somebody, let's talk to anybody. And it's just anybody can come in, which is fun. One of the things that I, I worry about, um, there used to be this thing, I forget what it was called, but um, something where you could randomly chat with video to a stranger somewhere else online. And it, it didn't work because people just started taking their clothes off all the time. You that know? was pretty was much just... every social media in right. the like, so, okay. early days, I think. I think that's where it's it's doing really well because you don't have the, the picture. Although there is, it, it's, it's strange how people are already adapting to its limitations and how they're doing things. So a good example is that what people are doing is they ask you to refresh the room, which is where you drag it down and the, uh, and the latest list changes at the top. And people will change their avatar icon for a refresh. So they will use that as the way of posting a picture so that you yeah. can see a picture in there, there. But I think some of the points you said are really interesting. I found exactly the same, Josh, that the African-American population seems to be far more highly represented on this and have some really interesting views that typically from where we're sitting, maybe in the UK, we don't get exposed to. So, I'm finding that quite fascinating, listening to people that, mm -hmm. in general terms, I wouldn't have an opportunity to talk to. And that's it. I suppose, as you say, it's almost like listening to radio stations in the middle of the night that are from a far-flung mm -hmm. place that yeah. you never, ever thought you would be listening to. Getting some touch of something that you didn't do, like the long-wave radio and everything. Yeah. I worry that it would become too curated. You know, uh, Leo, I really like the idea that you get to listen into other people's conversations, you know, that, that aren't your conversations, that are not from your social group, and see what it's like. But, you know, in theory, I could do that on Facebook, right? I could find anything I want on Facebook, but, but what Facebook actually serves me up is stuff about people I already know. You know, which is nice. I like to see my friends' baby pictures, don't get me wrong. It isn't really this kind of exploring learning experience but i mean again in theory you could do that on twitter i mean i i quite often well not 
as often as I used to because I try to stay clear of it a little bit but you can go down the old Twitter rabbit holes and kind of follow threads and conversations about pretty much any topic that you happen to come across or or want to search for. So is there a danger that this is going to go the same way as Twitter and again become very divisive and... Yeah, but I think the the point is that when you get an immersive experience so by that I mean images, sound and uh, text which is really where you are with Facebook you get too much and you get too too much so you can't concentrate on an individual sense and and I think the nice thing about this is it's if you are somebody who listens if you are somebody who thinks by voice so for example mm-hmm. is although I'm you know as you may know I'm a big fan of Watford I actually prefer listening to games than to watching them I always have it's always been my preferred way of doing it. If you were given a choice, I would actually listen to a game on the radio than I would watch it on the TV. Um, and that's where it's always worked for me. And I think that's why I, I enjoy Clubhouse because it's a conversation and I want to listen rather than visualise something. Um, and mm-hmm. that's, that's and I find the same with like why I like reading books because in my head, I'm actually saying the words. Yeah, yeah. And that's and I'm visualizing and I'm filling the gaps in my in my mind Did, with that. Didn't you also like Clubhouse though because you were actually recognised? Your name was recognised last week from this podcast. Well, yes, a my name was recognised <laughs> from this podcast, so and fame, then the other <laughs> the other the other story related, and I think I may have already told Josh this as I went into one Clubhouse. This person was explaining how his German grandmother was running a Zoom room to say hello to all of her grandchildren. But what she did is she had about hundred in there. She muted everybody. She's about. <laughs> 90 years old she muted every single one of them she opened their mic for one minute and one minute only they were allowed to say what they did and then closed their mic immediately (laughs) and moved to the next person and i said oh that sounds a bit like my rabbi and they said is your rabbi rabbi leah oh i've been found out so josh josh will probably recognize that um experience i'm i'm not saying a thing i'm not saying a thing uh, but actually one of the things that i that makes me think about this with our ritual project uh one of the things we're thinking about is all right how do we get these stories out you know charlie mm. was asking before what's the the output yeah there's going to be a report but we we're also thinking actually knowing what it feels like to worship alone alone and in community is a really profoundly personal thing one of the things we're thinking about doing is an audio documentary uh, either you know on Radio Four or something that you can download, or even something that you know you could have in a church hall or a synagogue hall, um, or in a museum, you know, with some photographs. Uh, because we thought of exactly what Leo was saying—that that actually, when you only have one sense, when you only have the sound of people's voices, it is more personal. It is more human. It's a way of connecting with people in a way. And I think that's a little nicer. You know, it's it's less likely to get as angry and as vociferous as Twitter does sometimes. And it's also not quite as anonymous as well, because in Twitter, it's possible to be very anonymous. Not everyone is, but it's possible to be very anonymous and therefore very abusive. Whereas if you're using your voice, OK, you may not be sharing your name, but there's a slightly less anonymity about it as well, which may be dampening yeah. down some of the abuse and you're associated with somebody else by the fact that they invited you ah right yeah. so um on your identity it says was invited by ah, right. and so that sense of anonymity is also negated because you're linked if anything the platform is the opposite of anonymity 
because you you actually it says who invited you you can't get in without a real phone number it has to link back to various things so you're actually standing by your words i mean mm, i'm sure yeah. that people will circumvent it in certain ways but there there is that yeah. level but i think what rebecca is saying about the the power of the voice though is really important mm, yeah. it's even if i don't know your name you know mm. if i hear your voice i get the sense of the person from the voice and another link We've been talking about Clubhouse. We've been talking about social media. Josh, where can our listeners find you? Oh, you, the reality is I'm not a big social media person. You can find me on Twitter every now and then at J underscore Edel, J E D E L. Uh, but the more important thing is you can find the research project that I talked about at brick19, bric19.mmu.ac.uk. We'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. Thank you, Josh. Rabbi Charlie, where can people find you? I'm Rab Charlie on Twitter. I'm Charlie Beginsky on Facebook and always posting things on liberaljudaism.org. And Leo? So you can find me as WFC Kigo on Twitter. You can find me a lot on Facebook. You will find me this week dealing with uh, WordFest, the global festival for WordPress, um, which we would have happened by the time this comes out. But uh, you'll be able to actually uh, see all the really good speakers we've got on that. And now you can find me on Clubhouse. <laughs> and I can be found at our Singerman on Twitter, also at Kingston Lib Shawl. Thank you, Josh, so much for joining us. It's been really lovely to chat to you today. It's been a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. And uh, you can please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or your platform of choosing. And if you enjoy what you hear, please leave us a five star waiting thank you so much for listening and we'll see you all soon and goodbye goodbye goodbye, goodbye.